0: You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of Indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as a complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Nick Nesbitt, who is a Professor of Comparative Literature at Princeton nick nesbitt has published widely on the francophone caribbean with particular emphasis on the intellectual history of the black atlantic world in this conversation we discuss his new book the price of slavery capitalism and revolution in the caribbean which was published in february 2022 by uva press Our conversation here focuses on the limitations of the literature on capitalism and slavery since Eric Williams, in light of Marx's key concept of the social forms of labor, wealth, and value.
1: Nick Nesbitt, welcome. It's good to see you.
2: Thank you, likewise. Nice to see the both of you.
1: I'm really... uh really happy to have a chance to talk with you today about your book and talk here with Keisha. Um, I th- I will just say just as we get started, um, I really love all of your work and this is such an interesting uh, twist for your work. Uh, really a new voice, a really new sort of analytic um, and so I'm really looking forward to hearing you talk about the book but also having a chance to um, hear you talk a little bit, I I think probably later in the conversation, talk a little bit about where uh, where you see this book is in conversation with your previous work. So uh, anyway.
0: Okay. Hi. Um, I, again, echo John's sentiments. I really enjoyed reading the book. So my first question is, what drew you to this project? Of course, books are intense existential undertakings. You know, so what motivated you to write this project? If you could tell us a bit about that.
2: Sure, I'd be glad to. But let me just say, John and Keisha, thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. John, I'm likewise a huge fan of your work for many years, and so it's great to be able to dialogue like this. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, it's it's also great for me to be able to reflect a little bit on the book now that it's come out, because, of course, as as one is Writing it and and editing it and all, you're sort of in the middle of it and and uh, I think uh, just to answer your first question, um, the context that brought the book uh, uh, from its from its beginning to uh, to where it is now is is a little bit odd. It's definitely different for me, and maybe that's part of the reason why it it may take the form of, of of a change maybe in 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 my writing um really to be honest it it came out of a facebook dispute that i got into with a, there's there's a there's a a, a group of people Let who me, uh... are, are reading marx's capital in, in, in a group called uh, the value form theory group and and they're often really interesting really smart discussions and somehow we got into a, a discussion about uh, slavery and capitalism and and uh, with one or two exceptions, uh, all of these people kept telling me that that uh, uh, slaves within capitalism uh, produce surplus value according to Marxist mm-hmm. definition of surplus value, of course not not otherwise, but, and, and I kept saying the opposite, and I would say no, and I would give all sorts of reasons, and they would come back with their reasons. And, and uh, the discussion helped me uh, to, to understand much better and clarify my own uh, thoughts about Marx's argument for why slave labor or laboring slaves can't produce surplus value in capitalism, but I also had this this immense sort of frustration of a back and forth Facebook argument that was going nowhere. I wasn't convincing anyone; they weren't convincing me. We, we you know, all <laughs> were sure we were we were right, and it and it just um, didn't go anywhere. And so I I got very passionate about it, and it seemed in these times two or three years ago, uh, really important to me, not just in the context of recent discussions of uh, racial capitalism, Black Lives Matter, uh, the new history of capitalism, these things that have been going on for five or 10 years, but also just in this era more generally that we're living in of post-truth, right? And and everybody has their opinion, it goes on to social media, and, and it creates these uh, often- Terrible uh, uh, effects uh, uh, of, uh, in the way that public opinion is 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 transformed by social media, and so it made me want to take a step back from that and uh, uh, look at some of the, the texts and 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 that I. I'm passionate about and I've written about for many years in the French Caribbean and the problem of slavery, the problem of the Haitian Revolution, these sorts of things, but to do so in a way that I could make a a real concerted and definite theoretical intervention along these lines, which is to say precisely to demonstrate in a convincing way this argument that marx puts forward but doesn't put forward in a systematic way in the three volumes of capital that is Mm. to say that slave labor cannot by definition produce surplus value in capitalism and that uh, uh, needs to be shown because he doesn't do it step by step but he provides i think all of the means to do so and secondly it, it some people have have thought about that that question and even suggested Conclusions similar to what I draw, but nobody that I found seemed to have, have articulated the secondary question that that implies. If slave labor can't produce surplus value as Marx defines it, what is it doing in capitalism? Right? How do we understand it in that immense theoretical project that Marx has, which we know is the three unfinished volumes of Capital. And to do that, to to undertake that project, you know, in a way that I hoped and continue to hope, hopefully not naively, may change people's minds to some extent, or at least at least clarify the discussion in in certain theoretical dimensions and parameters uh, required for me to really focus in. For me, the first time in, and I, th- I think in in what I've compared to what I've written in the past, on one problem, and that's the problem that I take up again and again in different ways in the first half of the book. Mm-hmm. How do we define capitalist slavery, not mm-hmm. capitalism and slavery as? Traditionally, in Marxism, they've been thought of as two different modes of production. You had slavery, and then there was wage labor, which defined, essentially, Mm -hmm. capitalism. But we know that in the 19th century, slavery after the Haitian Revolution, right, uh, that slavery didn't magically disappear. It expanded through the 19th century, precisely at the time when industrial capitalism that Marx was analyzing was consolidating itself. So how do we define that theoretical object, capitalist mm-hmm. slavery? That was really the, 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 the task I set myself in that first half of the book, mm-hmm. to construct that theoretical object. So it's not a historical study of, of forms of slavery and capitalism. Uh, it's not, neither is it a, uh, a study of, of experiential say narratives of the experience of enslaved humans and what they lived through and what they suffered and what they hoped for and struggled it's not the book isn't thought i don't think of it i didn't undertake it in that way either of course Mm -hmm. there are many extraordinary books that have done that instead i tried to make it a theoretical intervention to clarify and maybe hopefully carry forward the the discussion on ca- capitalist slavery in some consequential way. And then just briefly, the second half of the book, in light of that argument and hopefully mm-hmm. convincing demonstration, I then took it up... It is a great demonstration. <laughs> you think so? Well, I'm glad to hear it because I, I, I'm convinced, but I don't know if anyone else is going to be convinced. We'll see. We'll okay. see. So then I just took it forward in the second half and tried to, to um, bring it to bear on some of these writers that I that I'm you know keep returning to C.L.R. James, Amy Cesaire, Jacques mm-hmm. Stephane Alexis and and really I was happy to talk about Suzanne Cesaire too whom I have not really mm-hmm. worked on much in the past. So
1: yeah, um, first of all, it, you know, the fact that in that opening comment uh, you could find some wealth in uh, Facebook arguments is is almost enough of an accomplishment uh, that you didn't even need to write. It doesn't matter what the book says, you have changed uh, social media's effect. Um,
2: It certainly pissed me off enough to, to really want to actually jump in and, yeah.
1: So that's interesting, you know, what motivates you to write the book is, you know, I got pissed off at in a Facebook conversation. and wrote a book about it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I, I want to
1: be mature enough to do that myself.
0: <laughs> of <also an> inspiration. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I'm interested in you know in some ways you've you've you know um, already responded quite a bit to this to this question, which I want to ask you about the title and subtitle because um, I was really struck um, you know when you when when we corresponded a little bit about the book being forth you know forthcoming and. Um, uh, that you that the title is The Price right of Slavery um, I will just say as a personal aside I'm, I'm trying uh, to finish up this book on James Baldwin and this mm-hmm. idea of price really is threaded through the book but in a very different register um, hmm. so I loved your book I was a little irritated because now I have a much more complicated <laughs> sense of price that I need to now revise <laughs> for um, but uh, that's what books are supposed to do challenge us um, but um, I'm interested in in why the price of slavery. You know, what is it about that term that's so important for, for you? Because it's not the economy of slavery, right? It's it's not the the uh, slavery and capitalism. Um, it's the price of slavery. And then I'm also interested in the subtitle, right? What why couple capitalism and revolution in the Caribbean? Like what why that coupling? So in some ways, it's just sort of. You know, if you would take a minute to walk us through the title specifically, what, what the, why this word "price" in the title, and why coupling capitalism and 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 revolution in the subtitle.
2: Yeah, um, it, it took a long time actually to come up with the title, and I'm and I and I like it. I think it works well, i hope I hope hopefully people will agree. It started out as something very abstract and Marx and capitalism and social form. I don't know what and And through a lot of back and forth and discussion, and my wife Ava, uh, uh I think she even came up with the final the final version. But it works really well, I think, and it's really. Important as you as you raise the question, why focus on price And in the context I was just describing of this frustration uh, uh, with these these dissenting and I thought unclear uh, uh, arguments about the nature of capitalist slavery, uh, I I decided in um, my reading of of Marx's Capital and his understanding of slavery and capitalism, that the one point that I could argue that was most crucial in that if if one if the reader agrees on that point, then everything else follows from that, which is to say that Marx in the first pages, first initial sections of the first chapter of, of Capital, Volume One, argues very simply that Capitalism is defined, he defines it, as the general, uh, the generalization of commodities and commodified relationships in any given society, anywhere in history or just abstractly. And therefore, if commodities are the general form of things that have value in that social form, unlike feudalism or whatever else we could look at, then he argues that in order for commodities to be exchanged they have to have a price you know it's like you go into the store once my uh, my wife went into the store and uh, into target i think and there was a she wanted a, a vacuum uh, flask and the, and she found the perfect one on the shelf, but it didn't have a price tag And so suddenly nobody in Target knew what to do. Yeah. And, you know <laughs> It's a commodity without a price that doesn't make sense. It doesn't have any value and finally uh, Somebody slapped a price on it and said give me a dollar fifty or something and the point is is precisely that Marx uh, Doesn't just claim it he shows step by step that in order for commodities to be exchangeable They have to have a price form, and Mm -hmm. and so, then, that implies something very simple, I think, and self-evident, but crucial for slaves and the labor that they do, did, and continue to do across the globe uh, uh, in capitalism. Which is to say, that the body of that person themselves is a commodity bought and sold in a slave market and owned nominally, owned legally by the slave owner, etc., obviously. But the work that that person is forced, violently forced to do, is not a commodity. It can't be because it doesn't have a price. You look at all the records of, of um, slave markets, etc., what is being exchanged are human beings, as well as uh, mules and whatever else was sold at, at these sorts of markets. And they all had a price. They all had a value because they had a price. But that labor that the slave would be forced to do didn't have a price. It wasn't a commodity. So even though the slave labored and made profitable things, commodities like cotton and sugar, etc., nonetheless, that labor itself wasn't a commodity. And if then Mm -hmm. the reader agrees, follows Marx's demonstration that I tried to construct step-by-step to that point, just around the the problem of price, Mm -hmm. then Marx shows that only the commodity wage labor is capable of producing surplus value in capitalism. And Mm -hmm. self-evidently, it seems to me, uh, uh, slave labor because it doesn't have a price, a price form, isn't a commodity, cannot mm-hmm. produce surplus value. And so I meant, I focused on this aspect of price. There were lots of other aspects of the place of slavery and capitalism that one could develop, but I keep coming back again and again in different ways to this one issue to try to. Precisely change people's minds about. So, because it seems so self evident now, of course, 150, 100 years ago, not everybody was ready to admit it, but now, after Eric Williams, after C.L.R. James, after so many other studies of slavery and capitalism, it seems totally self evident that because slaves made these hugely profitable commodities like sugar and cotton, that they produce surplus value. But then that's the more complex side of it is if they didn't what did they do well i won't go into the argument there but but simply the, the the put in a in a in a phrase the idea is that that slave labor just like the labor of of other motive forces on a plantation say mules or windmills or whatever it might have been produced Profitable commodities sold at, at market for a profit, but not creating surplus value, and that's where the Marx's argument gets really obscure because it doesn't make sense in contemporary econometric analyses that don't uh-huh. accept Marx's argument of the of the labor theory of value. But my my why I talk about Marx because I'm convinced that he is the only consequential uh, thinker to have developed an understanding of capitalism, not just as numbers, making profits, making profitable things, but as a social form. And the place of slavery then, in it becomes a social question, which it should be, right? Not just a numbers game
0: yeah and i think it's interesting because the way you approach it and you said to speak of the value of labor is to speak of the value of velocity or to speak of the value of the earth it's as imaginary as that and then you said labor to be validated in the capitalist social form must take a monetary form another commodity in exchange for another and then you have a price so i think that was clear how you explained it looking at labor that it must take that monetary form of a price to be valued within the capitalist social form so i thought that was interesting And so when I initially read the book and I looked at the cover of the book and, um, you know, it clearly invites discussion and didoism and um, notions of the gendered, racialized, subaltern subject of colonialism. So I I guess my question is, what is the relationship between race, class, and sex in the capitalist social form? That's a
2: great great question. Uh, And the cover, I'm, I'm, I'm... happy with the way it turned out it uh if if the listener can can call it up it it's uh it's taken from an image a 1955 bill that was mm-hmm. that was put out in the french caribbean because they mm-hmm. had a separate monetary system and there was this painter i keep i it, uh, the bill it was already in my dissertation I was talking about this image. I keep coming back to it and it's one of these things where Amazing. I keep seeing totally different things in it and uh, and and the the painter who painted it, uh, Robert Pougeon, he painted numerous different images in on French banknotes, both colonial and and metropolitan in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and this one, it, it just works so perfectly for the argument that I'm making it really gives a visual uh, encapsulation of the of the of the triangulation that's at work in, in in the argument that I'm putting forward which is to say it represents a Uh, Caribbean, French Caribbean woman, uh, in, as you say, in the clothes of the doo-doo, in in the traditional garb, but probably not a slave. She's got pearls and earrings Mm -hmm. and all. She's holding a basket of fruit, uh, essentially of commodities. So you have uh, uh, represented, I I think, in this, in my reading now, the producer, Mm -hmm. as well as the, the exchanger someone who's she's bringing the fruit yeah. to exchange she's offering it in exchange but then there's this third element in the image it's a banknote right of course and mm-hmm. and so hovering above that that basket of fruit is a monetary price in fact too because there'd been a, a devaluation of the franc and so it's a mm-hmm. francs 5 thousand francs valeur de 50 nouveaux francs uh 50 new francs and, and so you have these three aspects of production and, and, and exchange, the commodity itself, but also the monetary price, as, as I was just saying, as Marx argues, that any commodity has to have. And in this sort of uh, uh, you know, automatic surrealist uh, genius that this painter had, from the perspective of Marx's analysis and demonstration of the nature of any commodity, Pougeon, the painter, produced this incredible image that that concisely triangulates these three mm. aspects of, of uh, commodity exchange uh, in a colonial situation, but also just in the abstract, any commodity exchange as such, and the necessity that that act has of bearing a monetary price form. And then all of this, as you, as you say, Keisha, uh, uh, is, uh, takes on the specific form of a gendered, racialized subject. Um, And that aspect is something that uh, uh, I have to say, well, when I, when I, when I wrote about it 20 years ago in my in my first book, I, I, I think I focused in more on that. I, and, and whereas in this book, for the reasons I was saying, uh, describing a minute ago, here, I, I, I focused in on this more abstract relation of price, commodity, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. producer. And, uh, uh, and I would say that nonetheless, the problem of racial and gendered capitalism is, of course, crucial. But I think uh, in my reading, in my understanding, that problem itself has to be addressed after one constructs the, 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 the object of capitalist slavery at a more abstract level. That is to say, abstracting from first, initially, from race and gender, one asks the question, or I invite the reader to ask the question, what is capitalist slavery as such? And then if we have a a clear understanding of that object, that theoretical object, then we can ask these sorts of questions, essential questions about racial capitalism, gendered capitalism. And in my understanding, those questions uh, uh, need to be addressed at the level among others, of, of ideology, and the ways that ideology works to, um, uh, uh, and ideological violence work to enable the, the, either the, the creation of surplus value, or simply in the case of slavery, for example, the capture of profit, marketable, market profits, uh, which are not simply... We can't just say it's abstractly slaves as such, but first we have to understand capitalist slavery and then if we do, then we can begin to ask questions that I, I don't yet ask in, in this book or maybe hopefully I do a little bit in the second half of the book um, about questions of race and gender and their relation to capitalist slavery as such.
0: I just have a quick follow-up on that because you use um she when you refer to the slave in the text. So is it that this is a point of reference, the she you're referring to is this gendered racialized subaltern subject, using that as a point of reference when you use the she to refer to the slave?
2: No, no. I'm simply trying to use my pronouns in a in a fluid <laughs> Okay. <laughs> non-gendered way <laughs> yeah. in a, in okay. a ge- highly gendered language and so hopefully yes. I, I also use other pronouns and so no I'm just trying to be uh, uh, if not neutral um, uh, a little bit as egalitarian as one can be in a highly gendered language
0: I get that okay
3: great mm-hmm.
1: so let me ask you and feel free to say uh, this is an overly uh over the uh, literary question, misses <laughs> uh, maybe some of the political, uh, the political focus of the book, but you know the book's divided into two parts: from Marx, first part, first uh, section, and then, uh, or, sorry, from Marx uh, to Black Jacobinism, right? The second uh, part, but instead of those being simply the titles, right? The from Marx is followed by ellipses. And then it's ellipses to black Jacobinism. And I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about um, the, that distinction, but the uh, ellipses are f- so interesting to me because of the way they function, right? To point to something without getting us there, mm-hmm. right? A way of, of of indicating a trail that we don't arrive at the end of. But, it, you know, the fact that the ellipses come after from Marx and then before black jacobinism what's interesting to me i mean again like i said perhaps i'm over reading this as a as someone obsessed with ellipses (laughs) uh, which i am as a sort of formal indicator structure and memory and so forth but it is a really interesting way for you to have um i don't know even what to call it like type basically
2: typeset
1: the section breaks right with those ellipses
2: John, that's a great question, and I and I and I see how <laughs> the, the richness of your your readings of Glisson have have in, in, informed it too, and I love that uh, because it's it, it you're pushing me to think about something that I did totally automatically, and and I think that what 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 the I see that those ellipses doing. Is creating a sort of a disjunct- disjunctive synthesis, right? That it, that yeah. they're both uniting, but uniting in in difference without without erasing. And so the so the book's divided into two, I think, fairly distinct chapters. Right? The first half is really about Marx and and trying to recon first critically take on the, the the existing literature, and then try to reconstruct Marx's Notion of capitalist slavery, and then the second half does goes somewhere else and goes to C. L. R. James, uh, Caesar, mm-hmm. and 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 others. Uh, but I didn't. I wanted it to be separate but also united at the same time. And I, and I guess that's why the, those ellipses are there because they're, they're an attempt to both unite and maintain the difference in singularity of the two sections. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. for example, the first section talks about Marx's understanding of the capitalist social form. And I tried to make the book as a whole about the problem of social form in mm. the post-colonial, let's say post-colonial Francophone world, and mm. and uh, but the, the 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 figures that I talk about, the thinkers I talk about in the second half, Césaire, CLR James, Suzanne Césaire, Alexis, mm. are 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 all they're all affiliated in different ways explicitly with marx and marxism and marxist movements marxist decolonization etc through the 20th century but in precisely that respect that links them in a way with the first half talking about marx but it also distinguishes them because they are all figures of what um moisture stone called traditional Marxism. That is, a, uh, let's mm-hmm. say, uh, 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 post Leninist readings, understandings of Marx through the 20th century as the Marxism, as the striving revolutionary, often revolutionary, striving for political power and having attained political power uh, uh, on the part of mm-hmm. the colonized to change the distribution of wealth in society more equitably. But in the years since, let's say, since 68 or since, really since 89, uh, a very different reading of Marx's capital and of his analysis of capitalism has developed that is arguably, I think correctly, much more attentive to the, the, the minute, often complex arguments of capital, the book itself, whereas this traditional political Marxism of the 20th century concerned, rightly concerned with the overthrow of colonialism, the attaining of of political power on the part of the marginalized, marginalized and colonized subjects, etc, tended not to pay so much attention to close readings of capital. And so, and so the the disjunctive aspect of the two parts of the book, uh, one of those aspects is precisely that: that in the first half, I am focusing on what's been called Marx's monetary labor theory of value, that was almost unrecognized in traditional twentieth-century Marxism, uh, uh, and and uh, and yet is is there so explicitly. And I think if if one attends to it and reads carefully and slowly so clearly in the first chapters of capital Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, i tried to bring that to bear on this problem of capitalist slavery and so there's this sort of disjunctive synthesis i hope uh, that the that the ellipses point to and uh, that you john so nicely (laughs) uh, uh, noticed Well, I'm glad it wasn't.
1: (laughs) I am glad it wasn't simply my obsession with ellipses. But I mean, I like that. I I think it does indicate the sort of um, you know identity and difference, a connection and disconnection, right? Which I think is really important in these in comparative study generally. You know about you know how do you think you know European Marxism and and you know Caribbean Mm anti-colonial work. It's like, how do you think them together? That's a sort of ethics of scholarship and epistemology question. And I think the ellipses do a lot of formal work to announce that, that connection and disconnection, and as you said. I'm glad to hear
3: okay.
0: it. Okay. Um, continuing the discussion on Caribbean intellectuals and intellectual activists, such as Ime Césaire, you quote M. *La Tragédie du Christophe and write that when Cesar wrote these lines, he did so in pursuit of the social form more just post-colonial society might necessarily take. And I'd just like to read um, this section of *La Tragédie du Christophe that you wrote: "Secou secou savant blanche, comme disaient mes ancêtres, secous puissance de dire, du faire, du construire, de bâtir, d'être, de nommer, de lier, de refaire. Alors je les prendrai, j'en sais les poires et je les protrerai. So the question is how does Marx's concept of social form of labor, wealth and value shape the writing of Caribbean intellectual activists such as Aimé Césaire?
2: That's a great question, Keisha, and uh, uh, the short answer is literally it doesn't, <laughs> and that's the that's the disjunctive aspect of the book that that uh, uh, that, that John uh, was was suggesting, and I was uh, trying to develop a, a second ago, which is to say that literally Marx's concept of social form is something that's only really I think been attended to in readings of Capital since in the last couple of decades, but. Mm -hmm. traditional Marxist, including uh, post-colonial, anti-colonial, post-colonial Marxist intellectuals like James and Césaire and Alexis Mm -hmm. uh, were not reading Marx in that way. They were were working with a a theory of uh, uh, theories of revolution, for example. Mm -hmm. And so what I tried to do to make the book nonetheless cohere in this synthetic uh, uh, aspect or or dimension is to take the concept of social form that means something very conceptually specific Mm -hmm. for Marx in the first half, as I discuss in the first half of the book, more broadly, more generally, which is to say Mm -hmm. that uh, radical leftist Marxist intellectuals like James and Césaire and Alexi uh, were concerned with the transformation of social form more generally. James, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in terms of revolutionary decolonization. So I try mm-hmm. to look at the ways in which in the Black Jacobins, in my view, he tries to isolate certain necessary essential factors that make for Any successful anti-colonial revolution, because writing in the 20th century as a committed uh, anti-colonial Marxist, he wants to know how to overthrow colonialism, not just in the past, historically in Haiti in 1804, but now in the 20th century, in 1938, in uh, uh, 1962, uh, with Cuba uh, in in the in the second edition of the book, and so he's looking at, at that sort of what what allows for that sort of a revolutionary transformation of society from a colonial situation mm-hmm. to a post colonial situation. Mm-hmm. Or Césaire, in his case, also writing as a Marxist, mm-hmm. and I and I try to stress in that chapter the okay. continuity of Mar- uh, that Marx's thought played for Césaire throughout his entire career, obviously with variations and transformations, but not way beyond, decades beyond 1956 when he left the French Communist Party. Mm. But he maintained a democratic socialist uh, uh, position, orientation, where he tried, because he had that possibility, unlike say, the case of Toussaint Louverture and slavery mm-hmm. in Haiti, Césaire had the possibility to work constructively within French democratic mm-hmm. uh, 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 parliamentary uh, structures, and notably with the creation of the the Dôme, the overseas departments mm-hmm. in 1945 46, uh, and 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 so he he tried to transform, and I think successfully transformed the social landscape of Martinique in in hugely consequential ways but those were ways that involved industrialization wage labor for the Martinican proletariat etc that is within this larger optic of traditional leninist i would say marxism of the 20th century not calling into question the monetary price, wage, form that social relations take. That sort of perspective only develops after, well, first maybe with Reading Capital in France in the 60s, but really after 89, with this amazing exception of Suzanne Césaire. And that's what I was, one of the things that just really blew me away in her writing. Mm -hmm. She has only this uh, a small corpus of, of essays that are still so dense and so creative and so imaginary. Mm-hmm. And also, she stands alone in this group of, of, of uh, post-anti-colonial, post-colonial Marxist, Francophone thinkers mm-hmm. in calling into question the goals of industrialization, wage labor for everyone, Etc. In the name of progress, and she also explicitly brings those goals into 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 um, their real actual contradiction with mm-hmm. the echo the sphere uh, and and things that seem fairly obvious to us today and echo critique, but but here we're talking about the 1940s when industrialization on the left. Including the the colonial left, was sort of an unquestioned good. Certainly it was for Césaire and Alexis, but not for Suzanne Césaire. It's really amazing what she accomplished in those essays.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, let me pick up with with both the the Emma and Suzanne Césaire um, piece. Um, First of all, I, I, you know, one of the I think there are lots of things I hope this book sparks in our sort of overlapping shared fields um you know which is I I think the the thesis of the book around uh, around commodity price um understanding slavery and revolution um but I also think you know a very serious reading of Suzanne Césaire which you just you know you indicated there I mean that's a central part of the book um and I, I just think that's so overdue. I do think there's a tendency, and this is an indictment really of at least the English language academy um, people look at the volume of output, and I think sometimes scholarship sort of forms around that and as you say you know her her relatively small number of essays right shouldn't limit our sense of her as a profound and very uh, uh singular thinker and and I think this book to, uh, pushes us down that road when we read it. I mean, it certainly has me thinking that same thing. And mm-hmm. and I think if that's a, an effect of the book, as well as all of the, the work on Marxism and anti-colonial struggle, mm-hmm. um, that's a serious contribution. So uh, I have to say thanks for that part. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I wonder, you know, in that way, you know, one of the things that that, that the book does because of your framing the the. Uh, from Marx ellipse you know dot 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 uh, section is make us or make me I think all of us see uh, both M.A. Cesaire and Suzanne Cesaire very differently Mm -hmm. right and I wondered if this is more of a speculative moment um, and you, you the answer may be that just this book is very the second half of the book is very figure specific right people engage with Marxism in a certain kind of way But it did, I have to say, it did make me wonder about how your book would provoke us to reread some of those other canonical Caribbean thinkers, especially thinkers, you know, uh, like Walcott, uh, especially Edouard Mm -hmm. de not just because he's someone I uh, work on, but, Mm -hmm. you know, people who are thinking about the plantation Mm -hmm. in a different register. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to think about the plantation now in light of this book, you know, Condé, Brathwaite? All of, you know, these sort of post-phenon, sort of post-departmentalization thinkers who really turn inward to this sort of structure of Creolization and mm-hmm. Creole language mm-hmm. and so forth. But I wonder how you, you think of your book shifting some of those ways we ought to read or can read them?
2: That's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and. I, I have to say I'm looking forward to having now having done this to going back and reading some of those like uh, as you as you say I I I, I bet that when I, when it comes time for me to go back and read some of uh, say Glissant's novels on on the on the, the on the plantation system and Confiant and and Marie Condé and others I. I'm. I'm. I, I bet I'll, I'll, there'll be things that will stand out. I don't know what they'll be now because it's. I've been away from those novels for a little while, and so I'm. I wonder, and and I and I'm curious, but uh, I think that already, your your question makes me think about about Caesar too because he's he's in the book, and you raise the the question of of poetics, and it's not. A, a book about poetics intentionally, mm-hmm. for the most part, uh, Keisha, you, you, there's that little passage from Tragedie du War Stuff, but it, it was, I saw it as really opening, just sort of creating a bridge onto the next, the chapter on, on Césaire. Uh, 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 but, but maybe there's something more going on, because um, one of the things that I found so uh i find i continue to find so fascinating about emmy Césaire, for example is the way that he brings together so many uh dimensions and and ranges of of discourse and political intervention at Mm -hmm. such a high level right there's I, i you know i can't think of uh, anyone else? There are probably other figures, but but someone who is is one of the most brilliant, original, creative poets in the history of the French language, mm-hmm. and certainly even more in the history of decolonization uh, uh, of poetic language and, mm-hmm. and theatrical language, and he understands precisely that poetic discursive intervention as an intervention into the real, into the order Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. the real. And and even thinking of the real in the strong Lacanian sense as as precisely what lays beyond what is discursively utterable. And, And trying to extend poetic expression into that domain such that what is sayable, experienceable, uh, uh, ex- and expressible is enlarged and encompasses these other realms of experience, and so that that, for example, is not something that I, I go into in any detail in in the book. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, that I think is 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 a transformation of social form because our 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 understanding, our experience, our lived experience of social form is, you know, as Lacan said, is necessarily structured by our existence in the symbolic and po- and poetic intervention is precisely the attempt to transform the symbolic and how it structures our, our experienced world, universe. And at the same time, Césaire is intervening in terms of the, the, the healthcare system of, of, of Fort de France, right, and transforming the lived experience at this very real political level of day-to-day existence, as well as at the the more, the greater, let's say, higher level of, of political existence, the transformation from a colonial existence to a a democratic mm-hmm. existence for Martinique, right? And so he's operating at all of these different levels. But at each one, John, your your, your question makes me want to keep thinking about how does it force us to rethink the the, 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 the polyvalent dimensions, the, 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 the multiple dimensions of the poetic, to be mm-hmm. inclusive in the way that somebody like Césaire was uh, to this utmost degree um that was truly transformative
3: well, yeah
0: definitely um but well, I, I think we kind of addressed this a bit but you looked at slave labor and the fact that it does not produce surplus value so what is the rule of slave labor in the capitalist social form and how does this book sort of intervene in discourses on racial capitalism
2: so this is the, the 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 difficult question that I I tried to make a I guess it's an, an intervention in a in a historicist discourse of among historians largely since Eric Williams nineteen forty four Slavery and Capitalism so there's a whole literature uh, uh, that I, I tried to work through some of the what I thought were some of the most important um, references in its, in the reception of Eric Williams, uh, 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 hugely influential book, that in various ways, historians take sides for or against Williams's classic argument, that, in essence, that, uh, that slavery was one uh, uh, essential and hugely consequential to the growth of English capitalism, and two, that the ab- abolition of English capitalism in the 19th century was not a moralistic uh, uh, gesture of the good-hearted Eng- English on their part, but rather an effect of economic factors and, and development and, and in, in, a, in essence that when sugar production by slaves became uncompetitive and unprofitable compared with mm-hmm. other ways, then slavery uh, uh, was abolished and had become economically and thus socially superfluous and And so historians have debated that for mm-hmm. and against but I wanted to intervene at a, at a, at a, at a more general, level to think about what is this theoretical object that the title of Eric Williams book invents and calls on on us to recognize slavery and capitalism, rephrased as a single theoretical concept, for me, capitalist slavery. Mm -hmm. What is it? And so I turn to Marx as the only source I know of uh, where one finds the theoretical re- references resources to 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 think that question rigorously because it hasn't been at least this is what i try to show in the first chapter it hasn't been even acknowledged and addressed for the most part by historians who just dive in habitually to the archives and and use the archives to argue for and against without calling into question the capitalist social form itself as a general way of structuring social relations in a historically delimited fashion. Uh, and so I won't, the, the, the argument that I draw on Marx to develop is, is complex uh, and, and takes a whole dense chapter to try to put forward convincingly, as convincingly as I, as I could manage. Uh, But the conclusion, which I can just state here as a a claim, uh, rather than any kind of a a demonstration, is simply that slave labor, because it's not a commodity, as we said Mm -hmm. before, uh, because it's not a commodity, doesn't produce surplus value, as Marx defines surplus value uh, in Mm -hmm. capitalism. And furthermore, that if that's the case... Uh, uh what slavery does in the capitalist social form is to is to create not surplus value which only wage labor by Marx's definition can create but to create profitable commodities commodities that at various historical moments were more or less profitable sugar cotton indigo etc and Those various commodities at various historical moments produced by slave labor or wage labor. And Mm -hmm. in sugar, we have this great historical example in the 19th century that uh, Dale Tomich uh, develops in in, uh, his amazing, amazing book, Slavery in the Circuit of Sugar. Uh, Cane sugar in the Caribbean, uh, 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 beet sugar industrially produced in europe enter into this dynamic of of competition through the 19th century in which beet sugar gradually becomes more profitable that is uh, capable of production at lower cost price than uh, uh, cane sugar had been previously through the 18th and early 19th century and so you have this historical dynamic but i hope what the first half of the book contributes to that historical discussion is 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 a more hopefully more rigorous uh, uh, and consequential means theoretical means of understanding how that dynamic functions not just in terms of prices of different kinds of sugar and their production and costs of, of, of slave labor, costs of wage labor in Europe. but how the dynamic functions socially and what are the different theoretical terms we need to understand that dynamic as in its historical unfolding. I don't think we have any other uh, resource than Marx's chef d'oeuvre work uh, unfinished work of genius that he has given us in the three or four, Uh, volumes of capital. So, let me ask
1: you uh, about your reading of of James's Black Jacobins book. Um, I have, I don't know if I'm the only one, but I have in my head a list of sort of 15, 20 books that I absolutely love but I've always felt not smart enough to write about. That's one of them. Uh, I think it's a, decept- the, a black, the Black Jacobins, I think it's deceptively readable. Um, an incredibly uh, complicated book. And one of the things um, so I love reading other people writing on it because I'm like, okay, now I can, I can pretend to have a take on it. <laughs> and this is a fantastic uh, reading of it. And one of the things that, that you talk about is, uh, is is the movement away from the the uh, movement away from Marxist analysis of of monetary capitalist social form towards uh, in this your phrase the humanist deployment of Marx, and that really is what structures the, your way into the Black Jacobins. And I'm curious what you think is both gained and lost in that shift um, to uh, to this humanist deployment of Marx. And how sort of at the end of the chapter we ought to see uh, Black Jacobins? How we ought to read it? How you know is, is this a rereading uh, and reframing? And if so, in what way?
2: Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I I keep coming back to it, and and I I don't know. I just I just have a go at it and see if something comes out, rather than holding back as as you wisely do before such a masterpiece and (laughs) and and so i don't know you have have
1: better nerves than i
3: do
2: (laughs) i I guess or, or yeah um well so it's a great question though because because james is one of the the great figures of of 20th century humanist marxism and and he you know he after he after he wrote the black jacobins in the 40s he he had this reading group with uh uh, raya duna and they were and and they were going through step-by-step hegel's logic and the master slave dialectic and all this stuff and 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 reading it in the context of uh capitalism and marx and and so you know, in in this way that was precocious, right? because it's really in the 50s, uh, uh, particularly with uh, after after Stalin dies and the the, the the denunciation of Stalinism, that there's this wave of Marx so-called Marxist humanism in the in, for example, in the French Communist Party. Uh, and and in that sense, James is very much, ahead of his time. He's right on the cusp of the the rediscovery of the 1844 manuscripts and all these writings of the young Marx that were so consequential in the post-war years. So he's ahead of the curve in that way. But I, myself, I I haven't. Maybe I haven't said it explicitly, but I'm. I'm a devoted reader of Spinoza and Althusser's reading of Spinoza, and that Althusserian Mm -hmm. post or even even theoretical anti-humanism is what Mm -hmm. Althusser called it. Mm -hmm. That reading. Of, uh, of Marx and Capital, and so in a way, I guess what I tried to do in that chapter was to 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 read Black Jacobins against itself in that way, and I tried to dig out in just little phrases. It's not as though I'm, I'm certainly not claiming to uh, to follow through and read the book systematically in any way, but um, but to to take. Uh, uh, these phrases, uh, for example, in the in the beginning of the book where he talks about the not just the art of history, but the science. And so for me, mm-hmm. science triggers all of these sort of Spinozist Althusserian associations uh, that I've been referring to in the reading of Marx, of how do you demonstrate something scientifically, Apodictically is the is the word that, that Alterser uses discussing Marx. And so I tried to do something similar for James, but not about capitalism, but revolution. I tried mm-hmm. to, to to dig out from the what is what is explicitly. And beautifully and consequentially uh, uh, and overtly a humanist reading, humanist Marxist or Marxist humanist understanding of the Haitian Revolution. But I tried to to extract from there this other sort of um, scientific demonstration in the sense Uh simply of these are the factors, James argues, that in any revolution whatsoever, or any anti-colonial revolution, anywhere, at any time, in the abstract, are necessary for it to be successful. And, and so I try to follow that through in some different ways. And so really, I guess it's a way of reading uh, uh, James as though he were uh, Althusserian which he absolutely was not. But I, I tried to, to turn black Jacobins in that way that uh, uh, I am myself am so, really partial to.
1: And I, I just have to say, as an aside, um, it's amazing, these reading groups. <laughs> I'm
2: like, what was it like to be
1: this kind of a reading group, you know? Like, <laughs> early negative yeah. movement, you know, people just hanging out at an apartment, changing intellectual life, you know, James Oh my god, yeah. Reading groups and, uh, and I have to say, uh, it's funny, I just got back from a, a talk at uh, Indiana University and somebody asked me about Spinoza and you mentioned Spinoza and I said, you know, I did a philosophy PhD and when I took my uh, comprehensive exam on what they call modern philosophy, just you know, up to the nineteenth, fifteenth you know, to nineteenth century, I was praying they wouldn't ask about Spinoza. He's like at the top of my list of these complicated. You've helped me understand Spinoza, or why I should understand
3: Spinoza. But uh, uh,
1: <laughs> when you ran those together, I thought, you know, okay, it's back to the, back to the woodshed, as they say, to work through these foundational
2: people. I, I have to say this: the the other outcome, this book, if it if it's different from things I wrote before is because I've been and I'm still woodshedding uh, uh, Spinoza, Marx, and the Althusserians. And this stuff is so complicated, but it's so beautiful. And it forces you to think in, I think, amazing and really productive ways. The more you get into it, but it's really, you know, going down the rabbit hole. Um, but hopefully you get somewhere.
0: Worthwhile. Yes. So, okay, uh, so thinking about the Haitian Revolution and the destruction of colonial plantation system, I'm thinking of how Marx's um, analysis of capitalist slavery helps us to understand, or how does it intervene in discourses on the Haitian Revolution? Um, I know you were talking about post-revolution and the continuation of the system. And I thought of Christophe and Corvée. I don't know if you thought of Corvée and how perhaps this sort of sheds light on that and helps us to understand the Haitian Revolution a bit.
2: That's a great question. Um, And I suppose that's another sort of aspect of the synthetic dimension of the book where I am in the second half when I'm when I when I start thinking about the Haitian revolution again uh, in in those first two chapters of the second half um, I try to bring this this other Marx uh, to bear on on these kinds of questions I mean I think of this book I wrote a few years ago on the Haitian revolution and the radical enlightenment. And there I was really, I really focused on the problem of emancipation as a sort of world historical, as Hegel would say, moment in uh, 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 the age of revolutions, in the enlightenment, in the trying to put forward the full radicality of the Haitian revolution. So in its step, its, its unique accomplishment as uh, the, 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 the universal abolition of slavery for all human beings, insofar as that could be politically
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, uh, put into, into practice. Uh, and so I, I, I concentrated on that, let's say, more positive dimension, and didn't so much focus on the limitations of the Haitian Revolution, and, and you know we know that there have been many, but there's there's you know a huge always since 1804 and before there's been a, a huge discourse industry of talking about the limitations and mm. problems of the Haitian Revolution. So that you know didn't didn't need me to write a book about that, but <laughs> now now be, having gone down this rabbit hole uh, in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, focusing on on this these readings this this really close reading of Marx's capital that I've been describing that has le- that led me to see the Haitian revolution in in a different way the most obvious is is uh, to take into account Marx's famous um, quip or statement of uh, or, or let, okay let's say critique of uh, of of um, the age of of revolutions and the rights of of man and citizen, etc., as having created the ideal and necessary subject for capitalism, which is to say only a a free human being, as Hegel Mm -hmm. first saw uh, in relation to slavery, only a free human being who possesses themselves in their own person is able to offer up as a commodity, Marx said,
3: mm.
2: uh, uh, their capacity for work. If one is a slave and doesn't own their own person freely, obviously, you can't offer your work for sale. You're, you're forced to work by, by violence. And, mm. and so, in that sense, there's a, there's a very mm, ambivalent Way that we are forced to take that I let's say was forced to take another step in in reading and thinking about the Haitian Revolution as an opening onto peripheral cap- forms of capitalism and, and profit capture and, and and the like and so in in that regard I, I tried to look for example not just as I was describing with James but also to think about what Carolyn Fick called um, uh, transitional forms of labor. In in between the the, uh, 1793-91 uprisings in Saint-Domingue, and Mm -hmm. the uh, uh, independence and really beyond with Henri Christophe's uh, uh, reign into Mm -hmm. the 18-teens. What are these transitional forms of labor, as Carolyn Fick calls them, what are they transitioning from and to? And the obvious answer seemed to me from plantation slave labor to some form of peripheral capitalist uh, labor, which is not necessarily to say wage labor. Um, And so that chapter for me was the one where I was really having to um, invent as, as, and come up with the best answers I could. I, I, wasn't, I couldn't rely on Marx or James or anyone else. Uh, and, and yet we have these historical phenomena that people like Carolyn Fick have, have described, richly described. But how do we think about them theoretically? What are these forms of labor? And so I tried to think about them um, in terms of a transition, an ambivalent, a complex, uh, an overdetermined uh, transition from plantation slave labor to peripheral capitalist labor in different forms, and so so for me that was a that was a way of engaging theoretically this step beyond the the the, the uh, pointing and, and thinking about the the, the the let's say positive dimensions of the and celebrating the, the rightly celebrating the Haitian revolution. But thinking about it also in terms of the ambivalence that it led to, but not as a failure, but simply in terms of its also world historical dimensions, but as an opening on to post colonial, peripheral capitalism.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, how do you think about this book in, in relation to your previous? Um, you know, it's interesting, it was interesting to me to read it, and, and I you know just you know not to to report from our email but mm-hmm. you said I'm I'm you had a phrase I, I meant to look it up but it was like I'm curious what you what you think this is a different book for me you. you had a phrase yeah. like that mm-hmm. um, and you know I mean you have a, a you know and it's this for me is so refreshing in terms of our of our overlapping fields you have a always have a very deep historical sensibility mm-hmm. um, but you know you're you're your previous works were so much more deeply engaged with poetics, right? Or sort of the you know poetics and structure and meaning mm-hmm. of of emancipation and the Haitian Revolution and so forth, and in that way were were for me anyway much more along the lines of uh, you know. It, philosophy terms, in terms of value theory, right, how do you think about the sort of political foundations of humanism, uh, their practices in different geographies, uh, and of course, you know, this broader poetics uh, uh, and Caribbean critical theory. And so when I read this book, it was so interesting to me in the second half of the book to see so many familiar names from your work, Mm -hmm. right? Of course, the beginning of the book, it's a a different kind of engagement with Marx um, than your books that focus on, on Caribbean poetics. So, you know, I myself have been thinking since I I read the manuscript, um, I've been, you know, trying to think, how is this related to your previous work? You know, is it a a course correction? Is it filling out a larger vision that you have that you've been working with? Or is it just a different book, you know, where you had to settle a Facebook score, which uh, I'm personally rooting for that as the relationship. (laughs) I just love that aspect of it. Sorry. but that's a long way of just saying, yeah, you know, how do you think about this book in relation to your previous, which by the way is a fantastic accomplishment as a writer when you can reflect on your long trajectory uh, of book publications
2: here. Well, <laughs> well I, 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 I'm just beginning to do that. So <laughs> I look forward to that fantastic accomplishment, but um, so maybe I can begin. Um, it feels very different to me i don't know if i uh, understand it completely but um it feels very different because of because of this mm, desire to make a a strong theoretical intervention as and to change people's minds i it my my feelings about the 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 work that i did before this book is that i was i was writing about things i was obsessed with and interested with and i in and and i and i and i of course had discussions and dialogues with with colleagues and and reading uh, 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 widely and, and all but but i just sort of plowed ahead and 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 and, and went wherever uh, my interest took me and and so i i see today i don't know if it's if it's accurate or fair but it it feels to me like the things that i've the books that i've written in particular before this um uh, were amalgamated lots of different paths and interests and suggestions and uh, whereas with this book i it it feels really like a book to me it feels like i want to change people's minds about this one question that i think is important in the contemporary context and also in the the, the longer historical and uh discursive context theoretical etc but but i want to i i wanted to and i want i would like it to to change people's minds and so i keep coming back in different ways to the same thing and and trying to to state things and and can as convincingly as i can and so it feels to me like it's both a little bit obsessive but hopefully that that obsession with the with the the singular problematic which is difficult which for me was difficult to think through and to to think about as clearly as i could and to uh, of course to to then try to 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 demonstrate and argue it as, as clearly as i could is difficult and so it, it it needed i needed to keep coming back to it and thinking about it in different ways and hopefully then the 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 experience of reading the book for the reader isn't just a, a obsession and monomania but hopefully there, there, there's there's enough <laughs> variation in in it that that it will be engaging and as i say i really would like to um change the terms and the and the 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 the, the conceptual um orientation and, and de- determinations of the of this discussion what is capitalist slavery and how secondarily have first marx and then uh a black jacobin francophone caribbean thinkers thought about this and um and and so for me, it's uh, all of all of the things that I've ever written. I think I sort of it, take these these postcolonial francophone thinkers and writers and objects and texts, and I and I just try to think and write about them under the condition of whatever different theoretical. Um, Conditions are 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 informing my own thinking at the moment, and as I say, for a decade or so, I've been completely immersed in in Mark Spinoza and the Althusserians, and so it just it just somehow gives a different a different take, a different book, and uh, hopefully it does so in a way that uh, that's engaging and and maybe changes the terms of the discussion a little bit.
0: Okay. And talking about changing terms of discussion, I like to talk about a reader. When we publish something, it becomes property of the reader. So I'm thinking of what you'd like the reader to walk away with when you know when the reader reads this text. What is the I guess transformative experience of this text perhaps? Um, what do you hope to achieve? What do you hope the reader will take away from this, from the book?
2: Well, I think there there, there are a couple of things. First of all, I hope at the level of 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 postcolonial francophone studies, the book maybe gives a different way of, of thinking about familiar cannot often yeah, canonical writers. Uh, uh, I think I would really like, I'm not a historian, but I would really like uh the book to be, I hope it will be read by some uh, historians and that it will open up not just the question about capitalist slavery but also at the at, a, at maybe a more even more general level about the problem of theory the the long standing mm-hmm. problem of mm-hmm. theory in historicism in historiography right and where historians have a tendency to shy away from theoretical discourse and to dive right into the archives and to narrate their understanding of what the archives are literally telling them. And the, the what I what I try to show through Marx's mm-hmm. critique uh, uh, and the example of capitalist slavery is that the archives don't and can't speak for themselves. And if we rely simply on our own, presuppositions and understanding of the world without reflecting on that understanding at a basic conceptual level to construct a theoretical object that will then be informed by archival research and and documents, then we as, as Historians of whether professional historians or historiographically influenced and inflected thinkers, writers, uh, we are in fact um, controlled. We're, we're working in uncontrolled, unreflected ways on these sort, these these materials, and there's a tendency then to just simply import our own. Uh, uh, unreflected ideological presuppositions mm-hmm. in our narration of the archives. And and I think Marx is a great, uh, aside from the specific problem of capitalist slavery, I think for me, Marx, and even more so Spinoza, who is, I think, the inventor of the critique of ideology, certainly Althusser thought so, uh, 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 Spinoza and Marx are are incredible resources for pushing us, pushing me, to think about these sorts of conceptual uh, 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 determinations of our thought as they inform the archive. And and uh, so hopefully that might have some purchase with, with readers as well at a more general level. I don't know. I, I certainly... Feel that very strongly, and uh, and and then I dare hope as well that it will simply be uh, uh, an enjoyable, informative read for people who are interested in in problems of racial capitalism, of postcolonial theory, francophone Caribbean, all these other domains, and hopefully in trying to say something. A little bit differently, um, I, I've managed to also be engaging. At least I can hope so.
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: and it's interesting you, <laughs> you mentioned archive. I mean, this is a, a, a whole other topic. So it's just more of a, of, a, of a remark as we as we wrap up. But you know the that idea of the archive and what does the archive tell you, I mean, one of the things, you know, you were saying, you know, your own orientation in the book being in some ways more deliberative or, or willful, you know, in terms of, of your own interpretive mm-hmm. frame. I mean, I think it transforms the way we encounter these texts. You know, as you say, it's not this sort of, what does the archive tell me? But it's it's simultaneously, you know, what does my approach to the archive, mm-hmm. right, the, the graphy of the historiography, mm-hmm. um, you know, what does writing about it draw out of it, but also the way, you know, the, to get back to one of the earliest questions in your comment, the way the, 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 the painting on a piece of money mm-hmm. is an essential part of the archive of slavery mm-hmm. and capitalism. Yeah. I, I just really like that, but you know, you you know, we're talking about what re- how readers are changed by books. Um, you know, I you know, I you know, you and I have both talked about this. Reading this book was, you know, really shifted a lot of vocabulary, and I feel like for me, it's a book that will loom in the background of a lot of my mm-hmm. writing going forward. But any of us who write, <laughs> um, you know, it's one thing to have an idea, and um, I think the myth of the writer is then that idea just spills out onto the page. But of course, writing is also self-discovery and self-transformation. We change as as we write. So just as a, as a previous question about, you know what do you what do you want a reader to walk away uh, with from this book? Um, how do you walk away from this book different?
2: yeah well, in t- in terms of writing, it it also feels totally different. To me, I mean, I remember when I was a grad student and, and into my first book, I was I was obsessed with Adorno, and 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 I, that was the condition under which I, I I wrote that dissertation and first book, and 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 when I look at it, if I dare, when I dare look at it again, um, there is a real. Um, mm, uh, how to say complexity <laughs> that 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 goes with that sort of mode, discursive mode of argumentation that is is contradictory and and often inconclusive, but suggestively so, hopefully, etc. And and reading Spinoza and Marx and 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 these kinds of thinkers and. In addition, having this real sort of desire to make a make a an intervention to change some people's minds, um, I just r- tried to write as clearly and as simply mm-hmm. step by step as as I could. And that was mm-hmm. the real goal for me. and it just it just sort of unfolded naturally. I didn't try. Change the way I was writing, other than to just say it as clearly and simply and convincingly as possible. Because I knew from this discussion that generated it that otherwise I wasn't going to change anybody's mind if I couldn't say it clearly and convincingly. It's a it's a complex, uh, difficult point and argument to make, and and so and so it had I had to do it in this sort of as step by step as clearly as I could if, I, if, if there was going to be any hope of, uh, of, of, of changing anyone's mind. And so I don't know if I'll keep writing that way or not. I guess it depends on where things, where things lead. But that's certainly um, the way that, that the writing of the book, which feels very different in its language and structure and, and all, to me, why Why I think I needed to do that
1: well it is a it is no easy read in the sense of as you say it's a meticulous argument but this is a book um, that rewards a really careful reading I, um, I think in uh, multiple fields this is a book that's going to have a huge
2: Definitely.
1: impact huge splash and um, I really appreciate you making the time to talk about it with us today Nick so this much. is really great
2: Oh, John Keisha, it's been such a pleasure for me, and uh, as I say, I, the the admiration is mutual. I'm such a big, long-standing fan of your work, too, John, and and I really enjoyed the discussion and the, the probing questions, and just getting me to think about about it in a in a, in a way that um, when you're immersed in the writing itself, one mm-hmm. one doesn't have a chance to do
0: Mm, really insightful it's probably an acre
2: (laughs) all right take care great thank you so much Mm -hmm. take care Mm -hmm.